and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, but, the, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hands to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre share take their share. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I'm your shield. Your reward shall be very great. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. I pursued a degree in business after undergrad, and my favorite class by far was negotiations. Um, the class was 10% lecture and 90% practice. And what the professor would do is he would set up these conflicts where he would provide each of us an envelope, uh, which outlined some situation in the character that we were supposed to play in the negotiation and our objective. So for example, there might be three of us where we're negotiating oil drilling contracts for the coast of California, and I might represent the business, uh, someone represents the governor, and then someone represents like environmental groups. Um, and each of us in our envelope has a specific goal um, that the other two don't know about. And you're trying to negotiate and, and come out on top, right? And what was awesome about this class is that your grade was based on hitting your objective and there was no way for everyone to get an A. And if I got an A on an assignment, it meant you got a C. It was delightful. I loved it so much. <laughs> uh, Maggie and I were engaged at the time and somehow she met one of my classmates on campus and she told Maggie, no lie, I can't believe you're marrying him. <laughs> That's how good my grade was in that class. <clears throat> I loved those assignments so much. It felt like a game, and the game was sort of sealed off from Christian ethics, right? Because it was this like perfectly contained circumstance. So that when in character, I didn't always tell the truth. Um, I went back on my word. Occasionally, I had to burn bridges sometimes. Um, and apparently, I burned a bridge with this woman. Uh, thankfully, not with Maggie. Um, Last week, um, looking at the fall in Genesis 3, we noticed the entrance of a new story for money, um, a money that sort of sealed off uh, the reality that the universe is a gift. And we sort of like, we're going to operate without that story, an alternative story. Um, now, in Genesis 1 and 2, we learn that God created the universe as a gift, and he created us to be givers, receiving and giving from what he created for his glory and the good of our neighbor in an eternal gift economy. Um, but the serpent came and gave Eve an alternative interpretation of the world, where she, the serpent took the same facts and twisted them into an alternative story, where God is actually not the original giver, he's the original taker. He was keeping hoarding from Eve uh, the knowledge of good and evil. And our best response to that is to become takers too. And that's what we did. Um, sin turned us all into 
takers. Now, faithfulness uh, requires that we resist this alternative story uh, and stay grounded in the story of God and hold on to the truth that God is a giver and he calls us to be givers. Um, How do we do that, though, in a world consumed with taking? Um, if I had done that in that class, I would have failed, right? Like I wouldn't have gotten good grades. And so a lot of times that's how we feel is, man, if I come into the world, if I come into my workplace, if I come into uh, the city, if I come, if I look at my finances as givers, like I'm not going to come out on top. And so how do we hold on to the truth of God's generosity and his call for us to be generous? In the Bible, one of our first main role models on how to navigate this tension is Abraham, the father of faith, where you see him move in a world that is marked by taking, um, where you have little kingdoms who are at war with one another all the time. And how is he going to move through that world faithfully? Now, he's not perfect, of course, but he is worthy of our admiration. And I think he's an important point in the story, filling out and developing what it looks like to be faithful with our possessions and with our wealth. Uh, And so today we're going to look at a story around possessions that I think helps fill that story out and illustrates how to navigate the tension of living in a fallen world. So let's pray. Dear Father, we are thankful for your word. Uh, We're thankful for the breadth and depth of scripture. Um, It would be easy to just think about creation and fall um, and those two parallel stories for money, but then there are so many questions that come in for us um, where we we know the world is more complex than just being givers in a taking world. And how do we navigate this? How do we work through it? And so we're thankful for the length of the story of God, how you um, worked out the details um, so that we might uh, know ourselves how to live faithfully in a complex world. We love you. I pray that you would give insight uh, this morning to us, conviction of sin. Uh, Father, send your spirit to bring conviction to us and encouragement and challenge. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. So, before we get to today's text, a lot has happened since the fall of Adam and Eve. Um, and so we're trying to sort of tell the story of Scripture through the lens of wealth and possessions. And so what's happened? Um, well, Adam and Eve listened to the wrong voice. They listened to the serpent. They became takers. And the consequences of that action are devastating. Um, it reminds me, if, as you read Genesis 1 through 11, I'm reminded of Galatians 5. Uh, 5 verse 13, for you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so God created us to be free and to use our freedom for love. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another watch out that you are not consumed, that you don't eat each other up. And I feel like that is an apt description of Genesis 1 through 11, where people turn away from love and start just devouring one another. And we see that in cultures today, where sometimes it has felt like America has been like that. Man, like people are just eating each other alive. Um, And that is when we turn away from love and generosity. Um, That's the way the world is apart from 
the story of gift. And so what can God do? Well, God remains a giver as always. Um, He cannot not give. And so he gives in two ways. First, he gives through common grace. God shows common grace by sustaining the world and even blessing its flourishing. Uh, Abraham lives in the ancient Near East during the Middle Bronze Age. Um, And so by this time, since Adam and Eve, humanity has developed year-round agriculture, writing systems, musical instruments, sophisticated government. Uh, They've invented the uh, potter's wheel, architecture, written law codes. Like there's, they've done so many things. They've laid the groundwork for medicine and astronomy and mathematics. All those things have begun because of God's gift, his continued generosity, blessing the world uh, with common grace. Um, and it's common, not because it's less miraculous, but because it's common to all. Everyone receives it. Um, God continues to give to all people everywhere uh, in these ways and more, even after the fall. Regardless of what we do with his gifts, he still gives and has constantly been giving. But this is clearly not enough to save us. It's not enough to restore the world. It keeps the world going. It does advance um, the world in many ways. Uh, the world is, is a lot better off now than it was thousands of years ago because of God's common grace and the, and the ways that we have developed as people. But people still sin, uh, people still take, and the wages of sin is death. Death continues. And so the world is still not the way it's supposed to be. And so with Abraham, God begins to lay the groundwork for a bigger gift, the gift of salvation. And this is saving grace. So common grace is common to all. Saving grace is specific. Um, This gift will come through one man. And it begins in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Um, Before this, if you look at the story of Noah in particular, you have God sort of making a deal with humanity that like, if you're faithful, I will bless you. But in in Genesis 12, he sort of changed tacks, like changes strategies, where he says, you know what, I'm just going to bless you. (laughs) Like, I'm just going to lead out in this relationship. I'm going to provide the blessing. It's not going to depend on you at all. And it doesn't depend on Abram. Uh, God makes Abram faithful. And so in Genesis 12, God chooses Abram, not because he was righteous, that's what um, that's an attribute he saw in Abel and Enoch and Noah where he, he identified righteousness in them. He does not identify righteousness in Abram. Abram's election is pure gift. God looks down and chooses him, plucks him out of a pagan culture. Um, and before we think this entirely unfair, grace is unfair uh, for sure. Um, but what is grace for? God chooses to bless Abram with the purpose of blessing others. And so he's, he's choosing him so that through him he might save the world. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That is the reason for his blessing. God is inviting Abram out of the economy of taking into the economy of giving. Abraham's story is in part at least the story of him beginning to listen more and more to God 
and God counting this baby faith as righteousness, and then God blessing him and blessing others through him, leading to more faith. And Genesis chapter 14 is just one episode in that story. It's a little bit of a complex story, but it uh, has a great payout at the end of it. And so um, I'd like to tell you the long story short. Abraham, he left his family. He's settled into Canaan, uh, into the promised land, but he's there as an outsider. Uh, Canaan is not his yet. It's been promised to him, but he doesn't possess it. Um, It is settled by a collection of small city-states, and because this is the fallen world, these city-states are not a peaceful bunch. They're regularly warring and vying for control and domination over each other. And so Genesis chapter 14, before what we read this morning, recounts three battles. And so in the first battle, four kings from the east gather together and dominate five Canaanite kings. So they just come in and they dominate them, including the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. That's the first battle. And then those eastern kings rule over Canaan for 12 years, demanding submission and tribute, probably requiring annual payments of goods and people even. And so after 12 years of subjection, uh, those five kings have had enough, right? They're tired of that. They're tired of these eastern kings dominating them. And so they rebel. They refuse to pay what they owe in year 13. Well, this angers the eastern kings. And so battle two starts in year 14, where the four eastern kings come and demand payment. Um, Again, they win again. And this time, as punishment for failing to pay, uh, Genesis 14, 11 says, the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. So again, taking. They come in and they just take it all. Mankind has become takers. It's what they do. The problem is, though, they took Lot, Abraham's nephew. And God says that he will bless, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And so it was an offense to Abram. Abram, who has become something like a king himself, he's just, rather than being in charge of a piece of land, he's kind of this like nomadic king who moves around. He gathers all the trained men in his house, along with some of his friends, 318 men in total. And that sounds like a lot, but remember he's fighting four kings. So he's probably pretty, uh, he's the underdog in this story. Um, But he trounces them. Genesis 14, 14, when Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen lot with his possessions and the women and the people." So at this point in the story, the main thing we're supposed to know is that Abraham is a boss, right? He just defeated somebody who had consistently won. So King Kedorlamor, the lead king from the east, he had dominated this region for more than a dozen years, but he could not dominate Abraham, God's chosen one. Um, Even with four armies, Abram was able to defeat them soundly. And this should remind the reader of God's promise in Genesis 12. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. Don't mess with Abram. Uh, The Bible has 
Much more for us than this, though. And so the story continues. Genesis 14, 17 through 24. After his return from the defeat of Kedor Lamor and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And Melchizedek blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to Yahweh, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Anur, Eskal, and Mamre take their share. And so what's going on here? It's obviously significant because the chapter devoted so much attention to this little moment. So it flies through the battles and then it slows down over this part of the story. At the end of the final battle, Abram brings back all the stuff and all the people. And at this point in the story, in this culture, Abram has all the power. He is in control of the situation. He just defeated the regional strongman, which makes him the new strongman. Uh, that's the normal pattern in the ancient Near East. An absolute ruler uses his position to aggrandize himself. That's what they do. At this point in the story, Abram is met by two different kings, very different kings. And they present two options to Abram. And so the first king is the embarrassed king of Sodom. And Genesis has already told us about Sodom in chapter 13. Uh, now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Obviously, Sodom is the notorious city that is destroyed alongside Gomorrah in Genesis 18, I think. And so we should expect the king to be no better. He is probably a wicked man also. So that's the first king. And then the second king is Melchizedek, a king who wasn't involved in the fighting, but seems to just appear out of nowhere. Uh, his name, Melchizedek, means my king is righteous. And we're also told that he's a priest to God most high, and he is the king of Salem, the city which would eventually become Jerusalem. And so there's just all this resonance behind this king. Um, Salem, Shalem in Hebrew is shalom, peace. And so he is the king, the righteous king of peace. That's who he is. King of Sodom and Melchizedek, the righteous priest king of peace. And notice how differently these kings present. Melchizedek greets Abram by bringing him and his men bread and wine, a feast, and by blessing them. The king of Sodom offers no thanks, even though Abram saved all his people and his stuff and probably his life. He actually sounds kind of irritated and just says gruffly, give me the persons, but take the good for yourself. That's all he says. Very different presentations from these two kings. And in this story, in these two kings, Abram is presented with two options for how to respond to sudden wealth and victory. Who do you want to be like, Abram? Do you want to be like the king of Sodom or do you want to be like the king Melchizedek? In the world of Abram's day would have expected him to be like the king of Sodom. Might makes right. He doesn't have to give any of it back. Like the whole world would know that like he is not obligated to give anything. 
He could have bowed up at the king of Sodom and said, who are you to offer me anything, right? It's all mine to take and keep. In fact, he could have spiritualized it and and said to himself, you know what? God promised me the land of Canaan. This must be how I'm going to obtain that land. This is how he's going to give it to me. And that too was the way of the world where kings were thought to be uniquely blessed by regional gods. And then when they fought each other, it was actually their gods who were in competition. So whoever wins, their god is clearly the god in charge. And so in this case, Yahweh wins. He clearly is over all the other gods, the Lord of lords, the king of kings. T. Desmond Alexander writes, the king of Sodom, in marked contrast to Melchizedek, typifies earthly or godless kingship that places sovereignty in the power of the individual. Corrupted human kingship is about taking possession of the earth and using power to control others. Such kingship extols the virtue of becoming wealthy by grasping all one can, regardless of the consequences for others. And so that's an invitation for Abram. He could respond like that and no one would bat an eye. It would be completely normal. But that's not how Abram responds to his fortune because Abraham doesn't follow the way of takers. With Melchizedek's priestly presence guiding him, Abram remains faithful to the true story of wealth, remembering that his blessing, including this victory, is a gift from God. Not only that, he refuses even the appearance of a different story. So Gordon McGonville writes, in the gift and the polite refusal, Abraham shows how he will possess the land. He will receive it as a gift. This takes a great deal of faith from Abraham. Um, You can tell as it leads into Genesis 15, which is the great covenant with Abraham, um, that it begins with God coming to Abram says, after these things, God came, comes and says, fear not, for I am with you. And it's clear that Abraham's not sure, that even though he, he does remarkably faithful things in this chapter, there is doubt. He's wondering, am, am I being a fool by living in this way? And so God comes and assuages him. Abram's victory was miraculous for sure. He should not have won that battle with just 318 men. But it wasn't easy either, right? And so he, cha- he, he did the work. He chased down armies through the night for miles and miles. He fought. Then he had to organize the gathering of a lot of stuff, like cart them all. We don't, it, uh, on, you know, uh, horse-drawn carriages. I don't know what it was. Um, but he had to drag it all back, right? A lot of stuff, a lot of people. He returns to no thanks from Sodom or any of the other kings, it would seem. And in that situation, I am ripe to be self-righteous and angry, right? I would not have responded kindly to Sodom. I would wanted to take credit for my hard work. I would have felt like I deserved it, at least some of it. And mercifully, in that moment where Abraham would have been strongly tempted to just go the way of the world, he sends Melchizedek with wine, bread, and a prayer. And in our successes and blessings, we should celebrate each other with wine and bread. We should bring wine and bread and celebrate these things, but we should also bring a prayer. We should also bring an an explicit awareness that God is the provider of all that we have. Listen to Melchizedek's speech. 
And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And so in Melchizedek's prayer, Abram is reminded, God is the possessor of heaven and earth. He owns it all. I am only a steward. God even owns my enemies, and he delivered them into my hand. God gives victory. And so as we think about our own victories, as we think about our own wealth, where am I tempted to believe the taker's story? To believe that I'm entitled to what I have, to believe that I deserve it, that I earned it, and other people do not earn it. Where am I tempted to believe that I deserve my wealth? What success, what blessing, what hard-fought victory of ours Do we need a priest after Melchizedek to read this blessing over us, to come with food and wine, but also with prayer, to remind me that everything I have is a gift? And so Abraham hears Melchizedek's prayer. It grounds him in the story. And then in submission to his priesthood, Abram does two things. He responds in two ways. First, he offers a tithe. And a tithe is a religious offering given to a priest. Um, And it simply means a tenth. And so literally, Abram gave a tenth of everything he recaptured back to God through Melchizedek, the high priest. And so if there are 10 gold cups, one goes to Melchizedek. If there are 20 sheep, two go to Yahweh. Um, This is what he did. This is called a first fruits tithe because it's the first thing Abraham does right off the top, um, even before checking in with the other kings, which is pretty uh, humorous, right? He doesn't confer with them. He doesn't divide with them first. Uh, they're not followers of Yahweh. I can't imagine how infuriated so- the king of Sodom was as he's watching this exchange go to Melchizedek and it's not his stuff, right? But remember, Abraham's in charge. Like he's the strong man. He can do whatever he wants with this. Um, And so he's choosing to force the kings to tithe, uh, basically, where all the stuff is captured and a tenth of it goes uh, to Melchizedek and to Yahweh. Um, For us, a first fruits tithe would be akin to tithing before taxes from gross income instead of net income, or uh, where it's the first thing you do um, with your paycheck before paying rent or buying groceries. Now, Melchizedek doesn't demand this. Abraham just does it. It's, it's, we don't see any requests. And so why does Abraham do this? Abraham's tithe recognized Melchizedek as a true priest. So it affirms his role as a priest. And then it affirmed that his prayer was true. He was agreeing with the prayer um, when he tithes. God is the possessor of heaven and earth. And he did give him victory. It's a spiritual practice which proved his faith. Uh, to others, maybe, to, to those watching, but even to himself, where he's asking, man, am I really thankful? Um, do I really believe that this victory is from God? Maybe it's just a performance. Maybe it's all for show. Maybe it's ritual or super, superstition. But then he tithes. And the thing about a tithe, a, a 10% of all those goods, it's not a token gesture, um, a tithe for most people is not a, a small amount. Uh, it's, it's not for us. Um, 10% is just generally too much to be a performance. Uh, for everyone I know, 10% of everything right off the top is a humbling amount. Um, it's sort of like a, a kind of like you're, 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 you're sort of, you're humbled by it, really. And, and that is a good thing because thankfulness is humbling. 
right? Like that's what I'm saying is like, this is not mine. I did not earn it. Um, And so I'm giving it back. Tithing should be humbling. Giving should be humbling, not crippling. Um, God is not, he is not a slave driver, but it should be humbling. Uh, 1 Corinthians 4, 7, who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? And so when we acknowledge that everything we have, we've received, we're humbled and tithing humbles us. Believing in God, possessor of heaven and earth, it's a humbling thing. I'm acknowledging that everything I have, all 100% belongs to God and not me. It's a gift and I'm responding to the gift by giving 10% of it back. Um, I'm both grateful and then honestly, because I've given 10% away, I'm still needy. It, it requires me to continue to be needy. And so that really is similar to the gift economy that we talked before, where there's a back and forth that's not equal. So I'm not matching God's gift. I could never match God's gift. There's no way that I could ever do that. But I still am sort of giving this ear, um, this uh, unequal gift back and forth and saying, man, I still need you. We're not done right. Like I need you to keep giving. This is the first tithe recorded in the Bible, though it was a common cultural practice in the ancient Near East, so it's not unique to uh, Judaism. But first fruit tithes do go on to be a big part of Israel's spiritual practice. Um, And a lot of us might say to ourselves, man, that's the Old Testament. We don't have to do that. And that's completely true. Uh, Christians are not obligated to tithe. Um, However, I think something so prevalent in scripture and in Christian history probably shouldn't be quickly dismissed. Um, I don't hear many of us complaining about practicing the Sabbath. Like we love the Sabbath, Um, even though it's an Old Testament practice, right? We don't have to follow it, but the Sabbath principle is still a good principle. Um, It still is the way of the world. And similar with tithing, it's an important spiritual practice. And while literal tithing is no longer required I would say that giving religious offerings in accordance with one's means is an expectation for Christians, except in extreme circumstances. And not out of guilt, um, but out of necessity to guard one's faith. It's, it's a practice which protects my faith. Uh, it's always hard to talk about tithes and offerings from the pulpit, but in a series on money, we can't avoid it. We can't go 11 weeks talking about money and not talk about tithes um, and offerings. And I, and I will say, if you regularly attend Citizens and count this your church home, and you're not giving consistently from what God has given you, I implore you to give. Not for my sake or the church's sake, and you'll just have to take my word for it, that I'm not asking you for myself. Not from a sense of shared obligation, though that's there for sure. Like our church is a family, and so families pitch in together, um, including financially. But that's not why Genesis 14 is imploring you to give. I'm imploring you to give so that you continue to identify with Melchizedek and not Sodom. That you are affirming that his story is the right story and Sodom's story is not the right story. So that you continue to worship God and not money. Generosity is a necessary part of our submission to God. And tithing is really a simple but challenging, humbling way to get that started. Uh, Christians are sons and daughters of Abraham who are saved by grace through faith in Christ, faith like Abraham's, and so we should emulate him. 
And our world is very different from Abram's. Um, and so uh, I don't want people to uh, get 10 plates and bring one plate here. Um, but in, in many ways, it's the same world. We live in the same world as Abraham. Uh, we're going to regularly find ourselves in, in his place, having to choose between God and money, between God and mammon. And Jesus says we can't worship both. We have to choose. And one way we choose, one way we shape our heart to choose, one way I strengthen my resolve to choose in the future is by giving today from what God has given us. Giving religious offerings, first fruit tithes, keep us grounded in God's true story, and they help protect us from idolatry. They humble us, they increase our thankfulness, and as a side benefit, they hopefully result in like continued ministry. Uh, that they, they, they come back to us um, by strengthening a community that we love. But the main hope uh, the primary intention, if, if you are at a church that you did not love, I would still tell you to tithe um, or find a church where you could tithe in good, in good conscience um, because the primary intention is that our faith would be strengthened and that we would come out on the side of Melchizedek and not Sodom. So tithing is Abram's first response to Melchizedek's prayer. Second, Abram refuses Sodom's offer. So the king of Sodom says to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself, which just sounds gross, right? It sounds wicked, the way that he talks about objectifying people. He's talking about people. Give me the people, and you take the stuff. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. It's a little hard to know exactly how to apply this because there are other parts of Abram's story where he happily takes wealth from pagans. So when he comes back from Egypt, like he comes back wealthier significantly. He's got like lots more sheep, lots more people, lots more gold. And so what is different here? Perhaps it's the wicked character of Sodom, right? Because how could Sodom really say, I have made Abram rich? Like that's, that's not the way anyone would interpret the story. Um, Abram's the one with power. It's his decision to give or keep, not the king of Sodom. But we all know people who would spin a story like that, right? Who would claim credit when they shouldn't. Uh, and maybe, maybe Abram sensed the king's untrustworthiness and so refused the offer. Maybe it was a direct word from Yahweh because he says, I have lifted my hand to the Lord. And so maybe God revealed to Abram that, that he shouldn't take anything from the Canaanite kings. Uh, that wouldn't be surprising because that happens later in Joshua when Joshua in, finally captures Canaan. They're told that even the possessions are devoted to destruction, that they should not take anything at all. And so how do we think about this? At a minimum, I think it's important to name that God cares how we obtain our wealth. He cares not simply because God cares about ethics, though of course he does. Next week we'll talk about the law and the concept of neighbor. But more than, not, more than that, God is after a certain story for each of us, and we should avoid details that muddy that story. God had promised to bless Abraham and to bless the nations through him, but God didn't just want to bless him any old way. He wanted to bless him through faith. 
Salvation is by grace through faith. And it was important to God that he lay claim to God's promise by faith and not by strength. He wanted him to to lay claim to it in his weakness. And the thing is, Abram still had a lot more faith growing to do. This is the very beginning of the story. And there are decades of neediness that still await Abraham. And that was important to God and the story that God was writing for Abraham and for us. Obtaining Canaan now, like think if he had just, if he had, just had the land now by means of war. Well, maybe that would have been within his right, perhaps. It would have confused the story. It, and so God asked Abram to wait so that it was clear to him and clear to everyone that everything Abraham had was a gift from God. And the thing is, God cares about the arc of your story too. God wants the gospel of salvation by grace through faith to be the main theme of your life and even the theme of your money. And there are some financial paths which would muddy that story. And I don't know what it is. But as we come to decisions, as we make plans for the future, we need to ask ourselves, man, what is the story that I want to tell with my life and with my finances, with my career, with my vocation? There are some paths that actually lead to less dependence, less humility, less thankfulness, less generosity, less flourishing, even if they lead to more wealth. And even if they lead to more generosity with that wealth, but it's still the wrong story. And so we have to ask ourselves and ask the Spirit to reveal to us what is the faithful path forward. Our world has so many strategies to obtain wealth. Think about it, like the four-hour work week with its passive income, the millionaire next door, financial peace university, right? All of these things, there's that crazy GameStop short sell scheme, right, from last year, where people literally colluded to falsely build up a stock irrelevant to its worth. People made millions, people lost millions, And we need to ask ourselves, not just is this legal, not only is this ethical, is it right, but do I want that to be my story? Where did you get your money? I defrauded and cheated the system. That's just not a great story, even if you give all that money away. And so maybe we're technically following the rules. Maybe no one would fault you. And I don't know the details enough to, to, to fault exactly the GameStop people. So I don't want to impugn any of you if you're sitting on a lot of uh, GameStop money. Um, maybe you'll do great and wonderful things with the money you make, but you have to ask yourself, is this the right story for me? Is this the story God wants to write? Will this lead me to more humility, more neediness for God, more Uh, thankfulness to him as the possessor of heaven and earth? Will it result in the right kind of glory? Uh, For years, we've asked our kids what they want to do professionally when they grow up. You know, you just ask your kids those things. And we have just always honored and celebrated whatever they said. Like, electrician, great. Teacher, great. Uh, We had a kid who wanted to be a truck driver for a while, and we told her that was awesome. 
like all the things that come to our house because of truck drivers. Like, that's a great job. The only thing that we have crapped on is YouTube star. Whenever that comes up, <laughs> that is just not a story that I want for my kids. And I know there might, you could maybe do it and there might be some way, but like in general, the YouTube stars that they are thinking of, it's not a story that I want for my kids. No matter how much money they made and no matter how, what they did with that money, I would rather her be a truck driver, honestly, and follow Jesus. And so ask yourself, what story does God, your father, want for you? The king of Sodom must have been so confused when Abram refused to take anything. How would anyone in their right mind do such a thing? And in truth, Abram was confused. Again, if you keep reading in Genesis 15, Abram is clearly doubting his decision, and God has to come and say, your reward will be very great. Don't worry. Don't fear, Abram. But how does anyone decide to forego such wealth, wealth that, that Abram deserved in many ways? A few months back in the debate over San Francisco politics, um, I heard the term luxury beliefs. I don't know if you've heard this um, term. Um, luxury beliefs are those beliefs which you can only really believe if you have enough money to insulate yourself from reality. And so San Francisco had just gone through a series of recall elections, right? First the school board and then the district attorney. And um, this person was criticizing some progressive beliefs as beliefs that could only really be held by wealthy people. And there are conservative beliefs that are the same, right? That the only reason you could hold these beliefs is because you are so far removed from everyday reality. Um, believing that merit has no place in public education, believing that property crime shouldn't be prosecuted. Those were the things that were debated in the recall election, right? Um, and the thing is, like, property crime is a bigger deal to those of us who park on the streets, right, and get our cars broken into. And so as we think about the justice system, we're like, well, yeah, there needs to be something because we don't have the luxury of living so far removed where our car is untouchable, right? And so luxury beliefs don't hold water for the average San Franciscan who is struggling with petty theft and bad public school options. But the wealthy San Franciscan, so the logic goes with their garages and private schools, it makes perfect sense. They're luxury beliefs. Well, the thing is, Christian beliefs are luxury beliefs. The belief that all of life is gift and should lead to gift the practice of first fruit tithes, the refusal of get-rich-quick schemes. These are luxury beliefs that only make sense for those who have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, who know that there is an inheritance, undefiled, unfaded, guarded in heaven, kept for us. And so we can give all of our wealth away we can do foolish and ridiculous things with our money because we know that we are secure and safe. Abraham's behavior in Genesis 14 was luxurious. His generosity was luxurious. Take it, I don't need any of it because I have Yahweh who will always provide for me. He was able to act this way because he knew God would keep his promise. He would never go without. His future reward would be great. And we likewise are able to behave luxuriously with our wealth. As we move through the story, we will be challenged 
um, by how it calls us to live, but we can do it because God is for us. We're able to tithe, first thing. We're able to give our wealth away generously. We're able to not worry for tomorrow and let tomorrow worry for itself. Why? Because God knows our needs and has promised to keep us safe. And not only that, he promises to bless us by faith and not by works. Our future doesn't depend on us. Hard work won't secure our future. Faith will secure our future. And so God in this story is inviting us to be luxuriously generous. But like Abraham, we need a priest like Melchizedek to bless us and encourage us, to remind us of the true story. And Christ is that priest who reminds us of God's generosity by bringing before us every week bread and wine, his own body and blood. And in taking that, we think, Romans 8, 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? One of my favorite Bible verses. And we get to experience that every week when we take the body and the blood. Man, God did not spare his own son. How will he not also give us all things? And with that security, with that luxury, we're able to go and give. In receiving this gift, we remember, my life is God's, he is my Lord, I will put my hope in no one else. Let's pray.